Welcome, and thank you for joining us for Neuroscience CME Journal Club. The goal of each journal club is to evaluate the latest evidence in clinical literature and translate that evidence into improvements in the care of patients. CME Outfitters LLC is the accredited provider for this Neuroscience CME continuing education activity. This educational activity is supported by an independent medical educational grant from Shire. This activity is titled, Child ADHD, Exploring Complexities of Care, Part 2. Our guest host for today's activity is Dr. Robert L. Finling. Dr. Finling is the Rocco L. Motto, MD, Chair of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine and the Director of the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at University Hospital's Case Medical Center in Cleveland, Ohio. Dr. Finling has disclosed that he receives or has received research support, acted as a consultant and or served on a speaker's bureau for Abbott Laboratories, Adrenex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, BioVail Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Forest Laboratories Incorporated, GlaxoSmithKline, Johnson & Johnson Pharmaceutical Research and Development LLC, Kim Farm Incorporated, Eli Lilly and Company, H. Lundbeck AS, Neurofarm Group PLC, Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, Organon Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated, Atsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated, Pfizer Incorporated, Santa Fe Aventus, Sepracor Incorporated, Shire Pharmaceuticals, Solvay Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Supernus Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Validius and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. Today's featured author is Matthew Parvin, MD. Dr. Parvin is an ABPN board-certified psychiatrist and clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Illinois Chicago Medical School in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Parvin has no financial disclosures to report. Disclosures of faculty financial relationships and full biographical profiles can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 404. The faculty have been informed of their responsibility to disclose to the audience if they will be discussing off-label or investigational uses of products or devices. Over the next half hour, Dr. Finling and Dr. Parvin will be discussing and taking questions regarding an article in the Journal of Pediatric Psychology titled ADHD Subtypes and Comorbid Anxiety, Depression and Oppositional Defiant Disorder, Differences in Sleep Problems. At the end of the CE activity, participants should be able to 1. Interpret data supporting that sleep problems in children with ADHD vary in incidence and severity based on ADHD subtype and associated comorbidities. And 2. Identify clinical implications associated with variable sleep problems in children with ADHD. To receive CE credit for this activity, you must complete the post-test and evaluation at neurosciencecme.com forward slash test. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's Journal Club. Hello, I'm Dr. Robert Findling. Welcome to our ADHD Journal Club. Today, we have with us uh, Matthew Parvin, who will be talking about a recently published paper on which he was an author. Uh, the title of the paper is ADHD Subtypes and Comorbid Anxiety, Depression, and Oppositional Defiance Disorder. Differences in sleep problems. So, uh, welcome, Dr. Parvin. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the paper? Hi, Dr. Finling. Thank you very much for allowing me to be part of this uh, CME activity. Um, 
it's an honor to be able to work with you. Um, I wanted to first uh, thank Dr. Mays, who's the lead author in this, and uh, I'm here in lieu of her and the wonderful efforts of the team. One of the, I think, the most important things we counter in child and adolescent psychiatry or even actually any pediatrics-associated uh, uh, clinics or specialties is that you get kids coming in or adolescents with sleep problems. And uh, what does that mean? Uh, I think that in, in psychiatry alone, when you see a child who comes in with uh, uh, difficulty with sleep, you can't just assume that it's just having a bad night, that child's having a bad night of sleep. You have to wonder, could there be something else going on? In this study specifically, we looked at uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder with the combined type and inattentive type, and we looked at uh, uh, co-occurring disorders like uh, depression, anxiety, oppositional defiant disorder, as well as with uh, associated with medication use or not, and seeing how this actually affected uh, sleep in these uh, uh, patients. Okay. And so uh, can you, uh, I guess maybe the best place to suggest is that's what you were trying to do. How often are, are, are issues regarding sleep uh, present, at least in your uh, uh, group of folks? Ultimately, what really made this an important question to you all? Uh, it happens very commonly in the clinics with uh, patients with ADHD. And, uh, you know, parents complain that my child is, has hyperactivity and, and that they have difficulty getting to sleep at night. What I get commonly is the question of sleep latency occurring. And, uh, you know, they think that it's just as a result of uh, the ADHD that the, the, the kid's uh, not being able to go to sleep. And, and, and that seems to really be a problem for a lot of these folks, or is this just sort of a minor nuisance? Oh, no, I think it's a problem. I, I think it's more than just a nuisance. And then the question comes for the clinician. A lot of times is uh, uh, the parents will come in and they'll, they'll tell us, well, it's the medications that are doing it. It's because of the medications uh, that the, the child is having trouble sleeping. And, and it really becomes a clinical difficulty. Okay. And certainly uh, the, the, what makes, I think, there, there are a couple of... Uh, uh, methodological considerations that make your studies very interesting. Can you talk a little bit about that, maybe particularly also the sample size and the parameters you examined? Right. Well, this study, uh, you know, when you looked at some other studies at the time that this was published, sample sizes were around 35 for ADHD and 28 for controls. Um, we actually had 681 uh, children with ADHD at consecutive referrals to our child psychiatry clinic with normal intelligence, uh, who were diagnosed either with ADHD combined type or inattentive, and they were diagnosed by a PhD level uh, psychologist using DSM-4 criteria. And uh, the psychological test battery included a teacher-parent questionnaire and rating scales, specifically the uh, pediatric behavior scale, uh, a computerized continuous performance test uh, uh, for impulsivity and attention distractibility, uh, referred to commonly as the Gordon, uh, a parent-child interview, observations of the child during testing, and a review of the child's uh, developmental history, uh, school uh, transcripts uh, from kindergarten to the present, as well as prior evaluations. Then so it really looks like you got a lot of uh, got a lot of information. Absolutely, absolutely. And the mean age, just to add, is for the ADHD samples around nine years, but the range was around between six to sixteen. 
and uh, with them having a, a, a mean IQ of around 106. And remember, the control was very similar, get around nine years, same range of 6 to 12, and mean IQ being actually 108, so quite similar. Now, where did you get your controls from? Are these un, uh, unaffected controls, or were these other patients from your clinic? These are patients from the community. And, uh, you know, we sent 7,000, uh, uh, 135 uh, 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 kindergarten uh, classes, actually, in the sample, and fifth grade students, and numbers around 7,312, which we sent out in terms of questionnaires, and we got about a 78.5% response rate. <laughs> and then from this uh, sample, we took the uh, number we needed for the controls. Gotcha. Now, you also said that you recruited these patients from your psychiatry clinic. Now, in a lot of places, patients in psychiatric uh, clinics may not be the same patients seen in, let's say, a pediatrician's office or a family practitioner's office. Um, based on your understanding of your clinic, how would your patients perhaps pertain to people who might not quite be in a mental health clinic necessarily? It's a good question. And... Uh... Part of it is uh, someone could say, I don't know. <laughs> the other part, though, is that you would, you would hope that in a, a psychiatry clinic that they've had referrals from the pediatricians. And I would say that the, the, the patients that we had, um, probably uh, you, you get people who are just the average uh, parent coming in and wanting to get their kid checked out to maybe uh, uh, referrals from a primary care saying, hey, we don't know what to do here, which may have uh, uh, related to the... Um, uh, the patients that we had, the ones that actually did have medication, were much more severe with their ADHD than the ones who didn't. And so that might have been a better filter in terms of the ones we actually treated with medication versus not. Okay, so it sounds like you have a pretty representative group of folks, mm -hmm. and it's a pretty large group of folks, and I guess that allows you to really ask some questions with real power and authority. So, uh, what, what, so what did you find as far as sleep efficacy is concerned uh, you mentioned subtypes. What, what, what would the difference between the ADHD combined subtype and the uh, inattentive subtype of patients? Well, uh, children with ADHD inattentive uh, didn't differ significantly from controls on the total sleep problems. Now, these are the ones without comorbidities, okay? And uh, they did on T-scores. And then basically they looked at nine sleep problem scores. And, and what they found was in contrast, children with ADHD combined had greater sleep problem scores than children with ADHD inattentive uh, uh, in uh, all the control areas. For example, difficulty falling asleep, restless during sleep, wake often during the night, having nightmares, uh, walking or talking asleep, wetting their bed, waking too early, and uh, sleeping less than normal, uh, except uh, uh, sleeping more than normal, which uh, uh, something that was found later was a little different. We, we can talk about that in just a minute. Now, oh, com good. compared with controls, children with the ADHD combined type had significantly greater problems with falling asleep, uh, bedwetting and sleeping less than normal relative to children with inattentive type of ADHD. Uh, now, certainly were difference between subtypes. How many patients were in each your inattentive group and your... Uh uh, combined subgroup? Well, when we look at the different subgroups, there was 271 children with ADHD combined alone, 144 for ADHD inattentive alone, 102 for ADHD combined with ODD, 
79 for ADHD combined with anxiety and depression, 43 with ADHD combined and ODD with anxiety and depression, and 42 for ADHD and attentive with anxiety and depression. And uh, um, no children had ODD in combination with ADHD and attentive type. Gotcha. So you have certainly large numbers, and you certainly found differences, at least in patients without comorbidities, between the ADHD subgroups. Correct. Um, tell me about the kids with comorbidities, because certainly comorbidities are very common in this condition. That's absolutely correct. Now, the children with anxiety or depression uh, were combined into a single subgroup because of sleep problems, and the T-scores didn't differ significantly between them. And the total sleep problems were uh, significantly greater in ADHD subgroups when anxiety and depression was present uh, rather than when it was absent. Uh, the comparisons showed greater total sleep problems, difficulty falling asleep, restlessness during sleep, waking during the night, nightmares, walking or talking in sleep, or waking too early and sleeping less than normal in the subgroups with anxiety and depression than without. So for example, ADHD inattentive with anxiety and depression had more sleep problems than ADHD inattentive alone. Now, in contrast, this was not the case for ODD, oppositional defiant disorder. Children with the combined type and oppositional defiant disorder didn't uh, uh, differ significantly from children with uh, ADHD combined type without ODD and total sleep problems. Nor did children with ADHD combined type and uh, anxiety and depression differ from children who had the same ADHD combined type with anxiety, depression, and ODD. Uh, this is the, uh, unlike children with anxiety and depression. Uh, so it's a kind of interesting in terms of that data. Absolutely. And, you know, certainly one of the things that we oftentimes hear from families is about daytime sleepiness in these kids with ADHD. Um, I presume you looked at that as well? Absolutely. Great question. You know, with daytime sleepiness, it was interesting that uh, it wasn't significantly com uh, correlated with sleeping less than normal. You'd think that, now, wait a second, my child, uh, adolescent, didn't sleep well at night, so they're going to have tiredness in the daytime. It was actually not that way. Uh, it was actually associated with sleeping more than normal. Children oh. with, uh, yeah, it was really interesting. And children with ADHD and attentive type alone had greater daytime sleepiness than children with ADHD combined alone. And uh, children with ADHD combined didn't uh, differ from controls in daytime sleepiness although the children with ADHD uh, uh, inattentive had fewer sleep problems than uh, children with the combined type. The uh, ADHD inattentive, uh, inattentive type experienced greater daytime sleepiness than children with the combined type, suggesting maybe that there's some sort of uh, neurophysiologic under-arousal in the ADHD inattentive type. And uh, there was a data review uh, in the article that found that there was a sluggish cognitive tempo, slow processing speed, under arousal, and under activity associated with ADHD in a type, excuse me, in attentive type, more often than with the combined type. Very interesting, and that might, yeah, and you were saying, suggesting that maybe those are somehow related to each other. Yes, and I think this helps clinically for. Uh, um, 
physicians or allied health or, or psychologists or therapists, anybody who's out there who sees kids like this, because you would think, oh, gosh, the kid's uh, having difficulty they're sleeping at daytime. It must be that their hyperactivity is keeping them up overnight. No, this might be, hey, we're, we're actually looking at somebody who has the inattentive type. And as you know, you've quoted yourself, a lot of times girls don't get reported. It's the boys that get reported because they got the externalizing symptoms. So sometimes if a teacher sees a, a girl who's quiet, might not be having externalizing symptoms, but seems to be dozing off a lot in the class, that might be a clue. This young lady has ADHD. Gotcha. And you actually made a very interesting allusion in your uh, last couple of comments that I want to follow up on, because certainly a lot of these youngsters receive medicine treatment, and certainly there are a lot of concerns about medicine treatment and its influence on sleep. Can you talk about that a little bit and what you found? Excellent. Um, you know, our, our results suggest that sleep problems are primarily related to the ADHD severity and not medication. Um, the 212 children on medication um, that, were, that had uh, ADHD had significantly higher total sleep problem scores than the 469 uh, that had ADHD that weren't treated. However, uh, however, the children on the medication also had more severe ADHD symptoms than children who weren't on medication. So when the severity of ADHD was covaried, differences in total sleep problems between medicated and unmedicated children became non-significant. What they found was that scores on wakes often during the night, restless during sleep, nightmares, walking or talking asleep, bedwetting, waking too early, or sleeping less than most children or sleeping more than most children or being sleepy in the day didn't differ significantly between children on or not on medication. <clears throat> uh, that's when the severity was covaried. However, children on medication had greater difficulty falling asleep than children not treated with medication. And uh, I think that part was quite interesting. It, couple of things that come to mind is, well, maybe because if their ADHD severity was greater, that they would have trouble falling asleep because they're still having the, the fidgetiness and, you know, kind of uh, wanting to move around and this impulsive behavior when they're trying to get to bed. Or, uh, and you, you can speak better than I have on this, and that is that, you know, maybe there were some dosing issues with the medication. And they might have had some uh, medication still there in their system, or it could be that the medication's gone and they had a rebound effect or phenomena happening at that time. So there's a lot of different things coming into play, and I, I think that's absolutely the case, that not all sleep difficulties are medicine-related. It may actually be related to the condition of the youngster, but certainly um, transient difficulties with sleep are often seen, but most of them actually resolve with time when you get the dose right. So I think you're absolutely right. You said it's helpful that you've provided some very thoughtful data, taking a lot of factors into consideration and not just focusing on the end products, which I think is really a, a key strength of this paper. Um, it's clearly well informed by not only research methodology but clinical experience, which I think is what makes this paper so interesting. So let me, knowing that we're running out of time, Dr. Parvin, um, how about you sort of summarize not only uh, for the science, but really for us clinicians, uh, what your take-home messages are 
Uh, if you have to talk to pediatricians, other prescribers, nurses, and the like, about what this paper really means to practitioners. Well, one thing I think it means for everybody, from the teacher in the classroom to the therapist to the pediatrician's office to the family uh, practitioner uh, to the uh, um, subspecialist's office, what it tells us that greater ADHD severity is associated with greater sleep problems. Parent reported sleep problems are associated with ADHD combined type, not ADHD inattentive. Also that ADHD combined type was worse off than inattentive without comorbidity. Uh, and also when you look at comorbidity of depression and anxiety, it worsens sleep problems for children. This is really important because a lot of times Again, we sort of get that they have sleep problems, yet I think the important part is to go to that next level of questioning and try to find out, is there depression and anxiety, which I think anxiety is a big thing that's missed with the care of children, as well as depression, and it's going to make outcomes worse for the ADHD and other factors in their lives. Now, ADHD inattentive had more daytime sleepiness. That's a really cool thing to kind of pick out from this article, and everyone can kind of key in on, especially you can think of teachers in the classroom, again, seeing a young girl who's sleepy, and maybe she's got ADHD. Um, the other thing is that daytime sleepiness is, uh, um, in children with ADHD combined type is equivalent to controls, even though they had less sleep and more sleep problems. Also, oppositional defiant disorder and enuresis didn't seem to impact sleep that much. So bedwetting or having ODD didn't impact it so much. And then when you control for ADHD severity, medication didn't seem to be associated with uh, problems with sleep in general, except maybe the bottom line, which is maybe them having uh, a little bit more trouble uh, or greater trouble falling asleep, but not, for example, restlessness, nightmares, walking or talking in sleep, enuresis, waking too early, and the other sleep problems we talked about. And finally, remember that children on medication, again, had more severe forms of ADHD. And uh, as we talked about the rebound phenomenon when they get off medications, or sometimes with medication dosing, or the illness alone in itself could have contributed to that uh, effect we saw in the end. Well, Dr. Parvin, thank you so much for answering all of my questions. Um, I think now it's time for us to open things up to our uh, audience's questions. Thank you for answering mine. Looking forward to the others' uh, input as well. And at this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone phone. You may withdraw your question at any time by pressing the pound key. Once again, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and the number 1 on your touchtone phone. And it looks like we'll take our first question from Trudy Hartman. Please go ahead. I wonder with daytime sleepiness, um, how often you suggest the child be worked up for sleep apnea, which I'm finding a lot in my patients. Um, is this for Dr. Finling? Or? No, this is for you, Dr. Farvin. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, I think that that's an excellent, excellent question. And, um, you know, I when 
and Dr. Finley can also answer on this. I think he has definitely the expertise. Um, I ask my uh, uh, families, and this is irrespective of body habitus, okay, thin or overweight obese. I say, is your child snoring at night? And if I get a history of snoring, um, then along with daytime sleepiness and maybe even mood exacerbations, I may go ahead and refer them to the primary care to have uh, an evaluation for an overnight sleep study to rule out sleep apnea because at Penn State with Dr. Tresher, uh, who's just an excellent uh, neuro, uh, pediatric neurologist, um, he's diagnosed multiple people there, uh, the little thin kids, and they have sleep apnea, and they actually had to get the surgery, and they were better. So uh, definitely that's something I think that uh, should always be in your differential. Dr. Finley, what do you think? Well, you know, again, I think the most important thing is, you know, numbers vary depending on site to site, but certainly I think for youngsters as part of a, a good review of system, a sleep history uh, is, is important. And, and certainly uh, thinking about obstructive sleep apnea as well as uh, any difficulties many of these youngsters may have even before uh, they even come to your office for uh, treatment or evaluation is a good place to start because ultimately a good sleep history is as part of any good review of systems, particularly for youngsters presenting with behavioral or emotional difficulties. Mm -hmm. so, I, I have find even in uh, normal habitus kids without snoring, um, with just smaller airways and sometimes mm -hmm. a family history, um, that they do have sleep apnea in the end. So That's an excellent point, too. Thank you. Thank you. Well, so it looks like we have also a couple of questions online, to say the very least, uh, which is great. So let me uh, pose a couple to you, Dr. Parvin, uh, because uh, no, because much of these actually are things that I think uh, are, are useful for us to consider today. Sure. So one of the things you certainly mentioned about was comorbidities in ADHD, and uh, at least it, it, because uh, many of the treatments affect uh, sleep, uh, I'm curious about, and people have asked questions about your approaches to ADHD, particularly with those with anxiety disorders, many of whom have sleep difficulties, or with uh, tic disorders. Could you could you speak a little bit about that? Well, I think first part comes into having a really um, a, a thorough psychiatric evaluation. And in child and adolescent psychiatry, you know, we're we're, we're going through developmental history, birth history. And um, another part of the important part of the uh, psychiatric evaluation is the non-psychiatric medical history. And I think to really be a good psychiatrist or child psychiatrist or adult psychiatrist, you've got to also understand the medical non-psychiatric problems. Make sure uh, those aren't the cause. And I think you kind of basically highlighted that on the previous question. But I think, again, it's worth reiterating. And then you then have to come into after you've done that and if you're comfortable uh that there isn't any problem there um then you really uh through evaluation and sometimes it can't be on the first visit it may take multiple visits to get more peripheral history to find out what that actual diagnosis is but you have to kind of rank them in terms of severity or what is the most common thing they may uh, uh uh, kind of inclusively address what the problem is here. And uh, when you're talking about anxiety, I think that gets messed, uh, missed a lot. And so like the scared, which is a, 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 a children's anxiety scale that's free online from Pittsburgh, there's other reading skills you can use, and there's a parent-child form. 
and I have the families do that when I suspect that there's significant anxiety, uh, or, or occasionally I'll just go ahead and do that anyway to see if I've missed that and uh, make sure that's been included. Um, uh, tick disorders, and that's a good question right there because, uh, you know, there are uh, medications that can make tick disorders worse or better, and so you have to uh, uh, find out history of that as well. And, and sometimes the, they don't even notice it. It'll, the, the child will be in your office ticking left and right, and uh, um, uh, you're the first one to know that uh, in their history. The other thing you have to make sure when you say tick disorders is to make sure it's, that, that we're not dealing with a... Uh, uh, medication that's used to treat mood disorders or bipolar disorders causing it, uh, which is a, a acute dystonic reaction or extrapyramidal symptoms, and sometimes that can get confusing. So uh, I think one is to do a good pre, uh, uh, I'm sorry, make sure that their medical history is uh, checked non-psychiatric. Second, make sure you're doing a thorough psychiatric evaluation. Third, there may be ongoing need for information to come in before you get to where you're at. And then fourth, you have to then prioritize in terms of disorder one, two, three, et cetera, or which disorder is the most inclusive here. And then you really have to then look at the data and see what do I need to treat here, the most severe thing. I think Dr. Biederman said in 95, if you have a mood disorder, psychosis, you treat that first. And then... Uh, the next level is you go ahead and uh, treat the depression or anxiety, depending on which is the most severe at that point. And then you would default on the ADHD and treat that. Um, and Dr. Finley, I don't know if you agree if that's still standard now or not. Well, I, I think ultimately there are a lot of different ways to approach things, certainly specifically for anxiety, since there's so many good non-pharmacological treatments, that's always a first place to begin. And then for ticks, again, um, for a lot of youngsters, it's not necessarily um, – substantially problematic, as you said, and once you go through a careful evaluation, it really becomes a discussion uh, between the practitioner and the uh, clinician because so many kids with tics or benign tics are time-limited, and you want to be really careful not to uh, overreact and make matters worse. Um, but let me shift gears a little bit for you because one of the things that wasn't really mentioned in much detail but certainly is a r relationship to sleep, uh, particularly with ADHD, was... Uh, um, enuresis, and certainly one of the things that uh, I, I'd want to pose to you and others have as well is about uh, the concerns about enuresis and its influence on just sleep hygiene in general. Well, again, this study didn't find that uh, it really impacted the sleep, which is interesting. But that doesn't mean, in my opinion, that it won't. But it was in this study that it didn't uh, uh, differ much from controls, and neither did oppositional defiant disorder. So when enuresis is a, a significant problem, you know, again, you have to go through, a lot of times I'll find out what you just mentioned about anxiety seems to be a big cause there, or there's an adjustment problem in the family, or really something really serious happening uh, to the, uh, along with those things, like uh, um, in terms of severity, maybe somebody's um, uh, abusing the child physically or sexually or mentally. And so these are really uh, uh, important things to say that I need to ask further questions. Uh, and find out what, what, what's causing this enuresis. What, what could be causing? Is this an uh, anatomical thing? Has the pediatrician uh, evaluated the child as well? 
That's what I think. What are your thoughts? So, so, so well, I, I certainly agree with you. I think one of the things that people always are oftentimes leap to is leap to treatment quickly, and I think ultimately when uh, stuck with a symptom, uh, thoughtful and comprehensive assessment um, to make sure you go through an appropriate differential diagnosis is really the first step that oftentimes um, helps clarify treatment. It's a bit like anything else. It's, it's easier to hit a target if you really know what you're aiming for. Uh, so I, so I, I certainly would agree with you. But another question actually that came up on, since you did mention questionnaires, um, let me ask you, do you use this questionnaire or some kind of uh, uh, screening instrument or a sleep log when you uh, evaluate youngsters with ADHD or uh, when you hear about difficulties? Or what do you do in your practice? I certainly, I must be honest, don't use a sleep log or a sleep diary. Although I know such ref, you know, resources are available, I, I, what do you do? I don't use a sleep log, but then and and I do ask them those questions directly, actually, and uh, try to elicit the history from the family or the patient themselves if they're able to give it, depending on their age and their ability to kind of give history. Um, some of the uh, uh, scales out there kind of incorporate some sleep questions, and there are sleep questionnaires that are out there that are free and you can use. But I think um, uh, a lot of times it becomes a clinical question, and um, and I, I have to agree with you. I, I I really don't give any formal sleep questionnaire to patients or families unless it really becomes an issue, and then I might consider doing that. But a lot of times it can be addressed clinically. So again, um, move it, it seems that uh, both of us seem to have a conservative bent to us. So let me see if that continues as I ask you another question that we got off of the online uh, questions, um, some folks seem to uh, suggest or ask about the appropriateness of prescribing um, modafinil or armodafinil uh, off-label uh, for treatment of daytime sleepiness in some of these youngsters with inattentive ADHD. Now, again, being a conservative creature myself, I, I have to tell you I really shy away from that. And I'm wondering, if is that something that you do uh, commonly or routinely, or is that something that... Uh, you don't typically do. You know, I I don't do that. There's, uh, I I usually uh, am very conservative. If there's a new medicine, for example, that comes out, uh, if it's a repackaged medicine, let's say there's a new product for guanfacine that just came out. If it's repackaged, at least I have familiarity with the compound that's there, and I know there's a lot of history behind that uh, medication, and so. You know, that's different, but sometimes when there's a, or at least for me, actually all the time, if there's a new medicine that's on the block, I really wait for the data. I wait for the leaders from the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry or other uh, leaders in the field to, you know, put some publications out there and talk about the risks and benefits of that medication. Where I do see this commonly, though, is in primary care physicians. And... Um, uh, using really interesting combinations of things. But, uh, no, I, I think there has to be data out there, uh, two years, three years, five years of data out there, and, and some, you know, uh, leaders in the field talking about that. And then then I have, I think, a better way to uh, uh, assess the risks and benefits. And so, actually, no, I don't prescribe that. Uh, I'd have to kind of have, have to have blown through the whole algorithm <laughs> for treating ADHD before I get to that stage. And if it is that stage, then again, I've got to ask the question, has this child been evaluated for an overnight sleep study? 
because if there's something uh, physiologic going on, we definitely don't want to miss the boat and give a medication that has risks associated with it until we're sure that that physiologic thing's been taken care of because that probably will have a higher risk if you have apnea in the middle of the night. So I'm going to be just provocative again, just amongst friends. Um, <laughs> moving back to off-label prescriptions, sometimes people do use off-label uh, treatments such as alpha-2 agonists. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm curious, um, how often do you use them in your practice? And, uh, and what are the circumstances when you actually might consider uh, doing such a thing? I feel for, well, when we talk about alpha-2 agonists, I think I'm probably more comfortable with an alpha-2A specific than an alpha-2ABC kind of general uh, agonist maybe, for example, like quantity. Um, because some of the data that was out there with quantity and stimulants and some problems with heart, although uh, uh, there's recent data that says it's actually good. So um, when we're talking about alpha-2 agonists, probably guanfacine is the direction I end up going. And if I do use it, the type of patient that I find myself using it is, again, someone who has ADHD but a lot of externalizing symptoms, uh, and even they're bordering in some oppositional defiance or they have it. And uh, they tend to be, I think, a better candidate for that alpha-2A specific medication. And so that's where I see it commonly in my practice. And, uh, you know, I'm uh, still waiting for, the, uh, for some of the new medications that are extended release in terms of uh, seeing, you know, comparing in my practice because it just got released uh, to see which, one, which way works better, giving mm-hmm. instant release multiple times or uh, an extended release once a day. Oh, right. And I can only just speak, again, for my own practice. Again, It's actually much more sparing than I think at least compared to other folks. And as a general rule of thumb, um, for, there are some exceptions. And certainly I think um, one of the com- more common exceptions where I think about it may not be in typically developing children. And, I, and I'd be curious, since we are sort of talking about sleep and sort of restless behavior, could you speak a little bit about your own experience with folks with uh, um pervasive developmental disorders or autism who chronically have difficulties with sleep. And it's related to what we were talking about today, certainly not on your paper, but certainly that's something that parents and I think clinicians grapple with all the time. Well, and then I'll just add to the previous question. I agree with you. It is not the most common step in terms of the alpha-2 agonist. It's usually way down in the I've done all a lot of other things, and now I'm adding that or giving it as a primary treatment to help with the ADHD. But to answer your question regarding pervasive developmental disabilities and sleep, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, they, the, these kids have a, a framework, uh, at least the ones that let's say are uh, autism spectrum, and even the PDD, I know us, but uh, especially autism spectrum, they have um, perseverations, they have somatosensory problems, they have atypical development and socialization problems. And it's a rigid framework that they live in. And what I find is that, uh, uh, yeah, they also have selective attention and they have mood uh, uh, changes that occur and some impulsivity. And even though DSM says you can't have ADHD and pervasive developmental disability, I think that a lot of child psychiatrists see it in their office that uh, the, the two are present. However, what I do typically is I try to treat the irritability associated with kids in the spectrum. And if I can do it with behavioral interventions, referrals, like applied behavior analysis, and, you know, they may respond and they get better in their mood and, uh, in general, even their sleep, et cetera, because they're functioning better. But uh, that's not accessible to a lot of people. 
And sometimes people come in and they got really tough stories and they need some help pharmacologically. And I do go with uh, risperidone or um, uh, depending on their clinical history, and sometimes uh, uh, aripiprazole. And, and these are for, again, let's just be clear there, this is off-label prescription yes. for a non-developing, non-typically developing population, because I certainly would not want anyone to think that this is either on-label or certainly we're talking about typically developing youngsters. Correct. Uh, the risperidone would be uh, FDA-indicated, but the uh, aripiprazole would not, and that would be off-label. And um, the... The key here would be to say, okay, if I can treat the spectrum irritability, maybe their overall attention focus issues or the obsessive, it's really a perseverative behavior is going to, uh, the irritability associated with that is going to improve because they're more flexible. And then you may find, hey, their focus attention is better and their overall uh, impulsivity, et cetera, is improved. If it hasn't, if it hasn't, then I will go ahead and, uh, consider at this point, well, maybe this patient needs something for focus and attention. And then we'll go through all the medications, <clears throat> excuse me, whether it's stimulant or non-stimulant medications with the families, and I'll talk with them risks and benefits on and off the medications, FDA black boxes, any uh, treatment alternatives, and uh, answer their questions. And then if we decide to go that route, we'll then go with a medication at that point. And, and those children or adolescents who I think uh, most of the time who, who I find need that second agent tend to do better. And so uh, it really uh, it comes down to what are you seeing clinically, and I think uh, uh, treating the one thing that covers a lot of things first, and then if you get some response but not complete, then maybe you consider uh, another agent. Okay. I hope uh, that makes sense. <laughs> well, again, I think uh, there are different ways of doing things, but certainly I think that what, you know, a conservative and thoughtful approach rather than a, a capricious or more shotgun approach is certainly, I think, something that I think uh, is an important theme whenever we're talking about this. Yes. Um, I've got two questions about enuresis here for you, and uh, I don't know if those – it's really pertaining to your data, and I don't know if you have any of those data in the study you mentioned. Did, did you look at any – let me ask two questions about enuresis. One, does it have any – was there any relationship between enuresis uh, and any of the – uh, ADHD or other comorbid disorders you looked at? I don't know if you explored that at all. And also, is there a relationship between childhood aneurysis and uh, adult ADHD? I mean, in, based we, on anything you've looked at? Yeah, we didn't we didn't uh, review the second one, and I think that the first one, again, uh, uh, I don't think they looked at that either. I think they looked at it specifically towards sleep, uh, not any other kind of uh, uh, peripheral uh, connection of the data. Okay. Well, now we've done a bunch of things online. I guess it's a good time for us uh, to see if the operator uh, has any questions for us via the telephone. Yes, we do. We'll go next to Clifford Crafton. Please go ahead. Uh, hello. Uh, uh, based on observations of children sometimes being treated with a psychostimulant who may fall asleep or get tired during the day, at, at times I've had uh, p people that I've actually given a psychostimulant to as a sleep aid and frequently they may say such as, um, my thoughts aren't racing as much and actually find that to be of help. I don't know how um, unusual that is, and I don't really know exactly the, the pharmacology, but I'm wondering if uh, you've had experience with that as well. 
The only thing I could uh, kind of say to that uh, would be that maybe what you're doing is you're you're just treating the ADHD, and that their uh, rebound symptoms or the intensity of the ADHD is such that that alone was making it difficult for them. And so by treating them, you're uh, potentially helping them to get to sleep better because you're treating the ADHD better. And then there's the you know other comorbidities that could be occurring there. Um, you know, the, the, sometimes people have difficulty falling asleep because of, we talked about earlier the sleep apnea issues and, you know, uh, there are medications out there to help them or maybe narcolepsy, et cetera. And I think, though, um, it comes back to, again, that maybe uh, what you're seeing is that the patient's ADHD is being treated. Uh, Dr. Finley, what do you think? Yeah, again, I, I would tell you that it's not terribly uncommon, um, but it, it, it's not routine. And there are some folks who do okay and actually describe benefit with helping them settle on in. Um, I must be honest that there really aren't great data about uh, the specific population, but certainly now when we're talking about clinical experience in the absence of uh, data, uh, we certainly do, I think, run into it occasionally. And uh, it's, a, it's a real issue for some of these folks, particularly youngsters who have uh, difficulties with uh, as you said, it's sort of the restlessness component of it all. And and, and quite frankly, it's, I must be honest, although sometimes it responds to medicine treatment, sometimes it responds very nicely, quite frankly, to some relaxation uh, interventions as well. So, you know, again, I think one of the mistakes in hearing those kinds of histories is to make sure you don't just leap right in uh, to uh, uh, pharmacotherapy, uh, which I, I think sometimes uh, can make matters worse in uh, certain individual cases. You, you know, there was a... Um a book uh, uh, published by Malcolm Gladwell called Tipping Point. I'm sure you've heard of it. And it's been on some pretty big talk shows, and it's on a bestseller list. One of the things they talked about in the book was uh, a time factor associated with making decisions. And I won't want to go too deep into that, but they kind of talked about these priests in a seminary and and how when they had less time and they had to go lecture on the Good Samaritan uh, uh, the parable that what happens was that uh, they actually never stopped to help the homeless person who, who was set up in a study, and the ones that had plenty of time did. And I think one thing is that if your office structure is such that you really only have a few minutes to evaluate someone, and, uh, you know, again, coming back to risks and benefits, um, serious risks are associated with uh, any kind of medication treatment or even non-medication, depending on the individual or combination. So I think if you're seeing that this is a situation that requires more time, I would say make uh, more time in your office setting to help them uh, or at least make sure you get uh, a colleague to do a consult for you. I think you'll end up feeling much more comfortable uh, uh, with that decision in terms of the treatment, because there's a lot of child and adolescent psychiatrists um, like myself and others who are comfortable with, okay, let's do one-time eval, and we'll send the patient right back to you. And I think uh, that is an underutilized service I see a lot. Um, Dr. Finley, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, again, like, like anything else, um, <clears throat> most youngsters who present with these kinds of problems have difficulties that are longstanding and just taken, again, working with folks and, uh, again, being measured, I think, is sometimes important. I know we want to help folks, but sometimes uh, looking before you leap too quickly is not for such a bad thing. And it's a balance between trying to be prudent and judicious and uh, while, while not obviously uh, taking such a long time that you lose the uh, youngster in the family because mm -hmm. you're taking too long. And it's, it's a balance like everything else in life, and that really is the art of medicine. Now, what I, I do want to know is um, a couple things is – that 
uh, as a general rule of thumb, we can't talk about sleep and ADHD or sleep in general without talking about um, melatonin. So do you want to mention how often melatonin comes into a, a play in your practice? And Because uh, sure. I, 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 we hear a lot about it from parents and uh, folks, and there's not a great deal of data. So uh, I was wondering what you were thinking. Well, and the, again, just to be very great. clear with folks, sure. uh, melatonin is not FDA approved for sleep difficulties in children and certainly, again, uh, certainly off-label. Right, and I think the melatonin you're referring to, if I'm correct, is like usually the over-the-counter stuff you get at the local pharmacy, yeah. and and not let's say the some of the uh, there's one FDA approved one for adults, and uh, right. Oh yeah, yeah. Exactly. These are people who either will ask about it or actually have their youngster on it when they come into your practice and say, right. "This is a good idea, isn't it?" Which exactly, is, which you get a lot of. <laughs> um, you know, again. Back again to making sure you've done your evaluation properly. Make sure you rule out the medical uh, non-psychiatric problems first and then look at the co-occurring disorders and then see how the treatment is going on that and if, you know, how you can treat that person, uh, you know, with the minimal uh, risk and greatest benefit. Now, when they ask about melatonin, actually there was an article that just came out in the February 09 edition of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry's Journal. We refer to it because it's such a long title, I think uh, commonly the Orange Journal, right? <laughs> yep. and, 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 you know, they reviewed uh, a lot of data there about sleep. I mean, the whole the, the article was specifically about sleep. And, you know, they, they talked about melatonin. They talked about other agents as well, including, you know, diphenhydramine, which is Benadryl, over-the-counter, and, and then um, prescribed medications. And I think with respect to the uh, uh, melatonin, I do see response to it. And usually, uh, starting at low doses, go like a half milligram, and then work your way slowly up. And then the, I think the article there said three to five was the range that they had set in terms of the the, the uh, uh, melatonin doses, but I've had patients come in with their families at some outrageously high dose, you know, oh, we give them 20 milligrams or something like that, and I'm like, whoa, 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 we really need to look at what's going on here, and um, it, I've seen benefits from melatonin, to be honest with you, especially uh, with with children who have ADHD, and even kids who have mood disorders, I've seen some benefit with it as well, but I think, you know, again, it comes into where you know have you done the evaluation have you looked at everything comprehensively have you done the conservative things relaxation feedback a lot of times what happens in females their core body temperature is about a degree less than males so having you know uh someone take a warm bath or shower before bed uh, if the room's too hot make it cooler if it's too cold make it a little bit uh, warmer with extra blankets is there distracting music or tv or other sounds in the house that are making the child or adolescent have difficulty going to sleep, if you've done your sleep hygiene work, um, it, it's not a bad thing to try. But again, it's off-label. All right, and because we're running out of time, um, there's one other question I want to specifically go back to your study and just wonder aloud with you. Sure. Um, and it's, an, it's a question from online, which is, are there any papers that you are aware of that either um, you've replicated by the work you've done on this part of this paper, or actually you've refuted by the results that you found in your study. Oh, and, and putting it within context of the literature, I think, would be, I think, a good place for us to close off in the next minute or so. Um, I, you know, uh, there was an article that just came out recently. I just can't uh, uh, recall it at this moment that I think they were, again, focusing on sleep 
and ADHD. You might know better than me, but I think it was in the Orange Journal as well. Um, unfortunately, I can't recall that right now. So what I can do is, um, if it's okay, uh, I can defer this to the team and that uh, we can get back with you on answer to that. And we can put that on the website, I guess, uh, where the CME program is going to be offered, because that is a good question. <laughs> okay, so well, well, cer certainly they can do that. And uh, so I guess the only other uh, thing to, again, ask about, or at least, um, is when you're working with folks and you've got these data, uh, is there any really closing clinical pearls that you'd like to share with us before we round things up, because we've only got about a minute or so left. You know, I think one of the most important things, make sure there isn't a non-medical psychiatric thing going on. Make sure that, you know, they've been properly evaluated, and make sure that the question of sleep is asked, because a lot of times it's just kind of a, a surface. So do you have sleep problems? You need to say, do you have delayed sleep? Is it excessive sleep? Is it reduced sleep? Is it restless sleep? And then try to correlate that, I think, with what's going on clinically. And I, I think if you ask about sleep, it's one of those things that uh, is not only per, a pearl, it's gold, it's platinum, it's something that can get you a lot in psychiatry because from there you can find out a lot of things, I think. Well, that's great. So it looks like you've done, uh, uh, of course, uh, a lot of good work. And I want to, first of all, thank you for joining us as well as uh, thanking you. Uh, for the contribution to the medical literature with a real nice study uh, that you were uh, part of a big team, I know. So let me again let my audience know that I'd like to thank Dr. Parvin for joining me today. And I, I certainly want to uh, especially thank him for helping us translate this uh, latest uh, evidence into improvements for our practice. And I certainly want to thank you, our audience, for joining us. And if you weren't able to get your questions answered, please send an email to questions at cmeoutfitters.com by November 30th and that Dr. Parvin will answer questions online and post responses. Uh, and I also want to just again thank Dr. Mays and the rest of the team at uh, Penn State. Uh, uh, she's an awesome uh, researcher, and uh, she was the principal investigator for this. And again, uh, it, was, it was wonderful to be part of this study. And again, thank you, Dr. Finling, for the opportunity to be here in CME Outfitters. Oh, thank you. And uh, again, I'd like to thank everyone then, I guess, and hope you're able to incorporate everything we talked about today uh, for our audience into our uh, practice to help us take better care of our patients. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.